You're listening to episode three of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. John Ashford of SASS, SAS, SA Swallowing Services out of Nashville, Tennessee. And I had the privilege of attending Dr. Ashford and his wife, Michelle Skelly's um, advanced fees course maybe a year or two back, and also heard one of Dr. Ashford's presentations at ASHA on the pillars of pneumonia, which I just thought was incredible. And I wanted to get him on here right away so we could discuss this and help to spread the knowledge of that one particular talk because I just thought it was so awesome. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll get right into the podcast in just a minute. But, you know, the whole point of doing this podcast is to be able to bring you some extremely valuable information that doesn't cost you a darn thing that you can just mindlessly listen to on your commute or while you're at the gym or making dinner. But some of you also might realize that you do want more information and you would like to get to use for it. So I've partnered with MedBridge for the entire month of September to bring you an amazing deal on their membership CEU packages. So I know it's getting towards the end of the year. You're like, oh crap, I need to catch up. I need to get some CEUs. We've got you covered. So I know there's a few different membership sites out there. Why did I decide to partner with MedBridge? No brainer. They have so many great resources all in one spot. There's webinars and lectures from Dr. Yanessa Humbert, Dr. Kate Hutchison, Dr. Katrina Steele, Dr. Marty Brodsky, Dr. Stephanie Daniels, Dr. Crary, Dr. Carnaby, Dr. Grower, Dr. Arvidson on Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing. So many awesome rock stars in our field. So whether you just need to brush up on the basics of swallowing physiology, or you want to learn more about dysphagia and acute care or stroke, or more about video fluoroscopy or rehabilitation treatment techniques, uh, I could go on. You get the point. But you have access to all of these with a MedBridge membership. So the regular price for this membership is $320, but MedBridge has sweetened the deal for Swallow Your Pride listeners for the month of September, and they're upgrading everyone to their premium membership, which includes patient handouts and videos, a mobile app, live webinars, and more. So all of that for $95. So unlimited access to hundreds of CEUs for $95. So go to medbridgeeducation.com, click on Speech Language Pathology, Sign up for the SLP education plan and enter promo code SYP at checkout. So SYP for Swallow Your Pride. Enter promo code SYP and you'll be automatically upgraded to that premium membership, but only for the price of 95 bucks. So super steal. Get on that. Now we'll get on with the show. So tonight we have Dr. John Ashford and he is the a part of SA Swallowing Services in Nashville, Tennessee is and then your better half is Michelle Skelly Ashford. She's the S, and she's the one that put you up to doing this, so we can that thank is, her. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was looking for a specific podcast guest, and I was looking for somebody to talk about oral care. So, luckily, she threw you under the bus to do that. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. 
well, I'm John Ashford, and um, I am the Education Director of SA Swallowing Services in Nashville, Tennessee. We are a private company and been doing uh, uh, fee services for uh, nursing care facilities, rehab hospitals, and working with some ENTs now for about 10 years. Uh, we pretty pretty much cover just the state of Tennessee. We kind of focus in that area. Um, I'm really semi-retired. Uh, I worked for the Veterans Administration for 30 years and uh, was in academia for a number of years. Uh, I taught as an adjunct at Vanderbilt School of Medicine and also Tennessee State University and later went on to uh, become a tenured professor at Tennessee State University. And then when I, quote, retired, unquote, uh, I came, really came on full-time as education director here at uh, at SA Swallowing Services, and I'm the one that coordinates our fees training services here. And now we have some other courses coming online. We just finished one on trach and vent here. Dr. Uh, Jamie Fisher uh, did that. It was a huge success. We had about 32 people there, and uh, uh, it, was a, it was a really good day. So I was joking with Jamie about it because she kept writing that it's a hands-on course, and people yeah. kept saying, oh, well, when is it going to be available online? Yeah. And it no, it's a hands-on course. And even yeah. seeing the pictures from it, it looked incredible. I mean, when do yeah. SLPs ever get to actually handle trachs and that's exactly PMBs and yeah that's yeah, exactly so it we've even talked about you know her taking on the road you can't take this on the road there's just, yeah. too, there's just too much involved and with all of the instrumentation and you know she's got some mannequins and she's got all the the tubes and the and all that kind of stuff and so uh yeah it was a it was quite an intense two days and so because of the success we'll end up giving it again probably after the first of the year Good, uh, awesome. talking about that now and probably give it a couple of times next year at least but yeah. Uh, yeah we were very pleased with that and it kind of buttresses very well with uh, you know, trachs and vents and swallowing and what we all do. So I want to plug your advanced fees course too, because I know I took it and it uh -huh. really kind of shaped the way I write my reports. And, you know, people ask me all the time, does anyone have an advanced fees course? Mm -hmm. It's like we take these basic courses, then we go back on our dysphagia islands and we think we know what we're doing. So, you know, I think the advanced fees course is so great because it really just hones in on what we're seeing, the interpretation, the report writing. Yeah, we don't even bring an endoscope to the class because it has nothing to do with insertion or anything like that. And it's, it is, it is strictly 15 hours of computer, look like just going over those. And of course, as I mentioned before, we have our scoring system and we have a whole way of doing this. And then we do talk about writing and we talk about biomechanics and, and really, we kind of take it out there. It's a strenuous two days, but I think people walk away saying, wow. And yeah. it's also very applicable to MBS as well. Uh, and yeah. we've had a number of people comment about going back and just what they learned on our course, they were able to apply to some of the MBS work as well. So, uh, yeah, we're real pleased with that. It's a very small class. We usually only, only take 12 people in that class uh, because we want it to be comfortable. We want it to be small we want to be able to discuss we want to be able to fuss and argue yeah. and that sort of thing but that's why the course is there and we were asked awesome. to do it we were asked yeah to do it, so yeah so. there's a huge need it was like i said it was a great course i recommended yeah. it well thank you a lot thank so you. yeah kind of the whole point of this podcast is to just talk about kind of hot topics in dysphagia now and there's you know some things that people don't realize are they may be doing wrong or they may be able to do better so just want to bring on the experts to really present the research of what we know and why we're doing the things we should and 
kind of the best outcomes we can get for our patients. Okay. Well, I went to your guys' advanced fees course last year in September, and uh, then I followed up. I went to the ASHA convention in November, and you had a packed house for a presentation called The Three Pillars of Pneumonia. Just give us a little bit, not your whole talk, but just (laughs) summarize a few key points. This whole idea of what are the causal factors for pneumonia as we as we know it in dysphagia. Uh, you know, it's always been the, the big thing here. We don't want our patients to develop pneumonia because, um, of course, it's deadly. I mean, it makes these a very, very sick people. And so many years ago, uh, when I was working in the Veterans Administration, you know, the question continued to arise in my, in my mind about, you know, how can a person have a stroke uh, in their head and then a few days later develop pneumonia in their chest? It just... I mean, it just, there had to be more to it than that. And so uh, that's when I kind of started a long journey of trying to determine what are the underlying factors and what are the things that we, that we need to know and what we need to attack as we go about um, working with these patients. And so um, back about 2004, 2005, I put, to, I put together a presentation for ASHA in Chicago. And uh, it was one, it had to do with pneumonia, that there's more to aspiration uh, than just pneumonia. There's, there's a whole lot more involved. And so it was at that point I began putting together the idea that I had to come up with those factors. And, uh, and I began finding some literature on this and began to build my, my kind of hypothesis. And um, then some, some years later, I began trying to find support for what I was feeling and for what I was uh, for what I thought was happening here. And uh, one of the things that I found out early on was that I, I came across a, a, a study by, I found one by um, Bartlett and Gorbosch, 1975. That's an old article. It's a long time ago. But it, yeah, a long, long time ago. <laughs> but, you know, of course, I'm still quite young. But anyway, yeah. what they said in this article was that aspiration pneumonia is an opportunistic disease developing in patients who are already seriously ill. Now, this began to add a factor that pneumonia just doesn't happen just when it, when it wants to, or it just doesn't happen out of the blue. There has to be a predisposing serious illness as a component to that. And so that was one of the first things that I, it was one of those aha moments to me oh, really, uh, you know, we have to have a very sick patient. Of course, we were seeing patients in the hospital anyway, but saying, wow, we've got to have a sick patient. And does that mean that people that are not sick are not going to develop pneumonia? Of course, this is going to lead to a whole lot more. But anyway, so then I ran against up against some other literature back in 1989 by um, a guy by the name of Skerritt and his, uh, and his colleagues. Um, and, and I quote them here, they say, the greater the degree of serious illness in a given patient, the more likely he or she is to have gram-negative colonization of the oral pharynx, and such colonization has been identified as the harbinger of pneumonia. This is back in 1989. And you know, in speech pathology, we were just kind of getting cranked up. Uh, we hadn't been in this a whole long time. But what it was simply saying was that this serious illness is, is it has to be there for pneumonia to develop, but at the same time, there's something that is causing 
this pneumonia. And here they're telling us, hey, gram-negative bacterial colonization. Now, of course, and it says, of the oral pharynx. Well, as I began to look more and more into this, and I won't go into all that tonight, but more and more I got to looking into this, there's a lot of uh, literature in the dental literature uh, and that sort of thing that said that, you know, the mouth is really this huge reservoir of bacteria. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. And if we, um, if we're looking for one of the potential causes of pneumonia in the lower respiratory system, then we've got to find a source for it. And so all of this literature then began to say, you know, oral cavity is, um, well, that's a really right place. Now, I have to back up here and say, one of the things that we thought for a long time was that people were getting pneumonia from reflux or vomiting of gastric uh, contents. Well, that didn't always hold up because a lot of our patients were not having reflux and regurgitation uh, and still developing pneumonia and uh, I mean back in the 1980s uh, and in the early 90s even there was still some controversy in the medical literature about this well it's pretty well been been covered now by saying uh, these people that have pneumonia from aspiration it's not aspiration of gastric contents it's, it's from the pathogens in the oral pharynx now on the other side, there's, there's another component to this, and that is our patients on trach tubes. A lot of our ventilator-associated pneumonias do arise from aspiration and micro-aspiration from gastric contents because of the severity and in the posture these people are, are lying in. But that's a whole different group of people who are getting this pneumonia from, from, the, from the gastric contents. We're primarily looking at, and I was always looking at, what about my stroke patient? He was not having gastric problems. <laughs> he was having other problems. So um, that's when I began to kind of put this thing together. Okay, here's, here's the second part. So back in um, 2014, I ran up against uh, an article that said that just – I mean, by this time, I'd already formulated my, my own hypothesis about this. And, and, but I ran up against this, this by a man named Ortega and his colleagues. And in 2013, they had the results of a poster session they did. And in this particular thing, what they looked at was they were saying that the serious illness was a part of it, the contents of the oral cavity, uh, the amount of uh, bacteria that's in there, and we have a sick person. And we've got to have a larynx that's not working very well. All of a sudden, those three things came to me as really the underlying factors of what we're fighting in, in uh, pneumonia from aspiration. And so that's when I kind of put the three pillars together and saying, okay, we got to have these three. We got to have a person who's very sick. We've got a person who is aspirating. And we've got to have a person that's got a nasty mouth. <laughs> And that, that really is, is, is what it's all about. Uh, and when I say that nasty mouth, I mean, I really do believe that. In fact, the, the paper by Ortega, they were really looking at the uh, colonization of uh, bacteria in the mouth. And, uh, and they found out that, um, that like 57% of the sputum uh, bacterial load was very high. 
with bacteria. And so, and then they, they looked at uh, oral rinses and that sort of thing, and they didn't quite have that pathological load. Well, we, we talk about pathological load now in terms of what are we feeding our patients. And these thin liquids that we give them, of course, can carry quite the load as, as our thicker foods do. So we know that some of the research is showing us out there that we have a higher propensity for developing pneumonia if we aspirate these thicker consistencies. And so um, that, that leads to other things, which maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. So, so then what I began to do in my own practice was I said, okay, I've gotten, a, I've gotten a, a consult request from a physician saying, please see my patient and um, um, for dysphagia, see if he's got a swallow problem. Well, I would go up to intensive care, I'd go to the ward, and immediately I would go in to see how sick this patient is. Well, one of the things that helped me in that was that I used laboratory values to go in and see how good was his or how poorly his immune system was working. And uh, so for myself, I mean, in an acute care setting, you get, you get blood results uh, back pretty quickly. And um, uh, I was finding some of these people had high white blood cell count. Well, this is showing us that, uh, that we've got active pathogens going on. Well, the mouth has got these in them as well as the rest of the body. And so if we have a high bacterial load or we have a high white count, means we've got our immune system is really fighting against something here then these people are going to have a low immune system and uh, uh, protection. Uh, even though we're fighting it, that means they haven't conquered it. And these people have a higher probability of developing pneumonia. So in the hospital, I would go and look at my patients. I go look, look at their, their blood values. Then, of course, it was up to me to decide whether or not these people were aspirating or do what kind of dysphagia. Did they have dysphagia? That sort of thing. Well, of course, we could do modified bearing swallow studies or we could do fees. Uh, and then the third factor was, all I had to do is have the patient open their mouth. <laughs> and you, you, you take a good look or you get a good whiff, you would know if these people uh, had poor oral, oral health. So, well, the, the literature continues to back me up on this. There are a couple of really nice studies out there. And, and one of them that that I really, uh, it's one of my favorite studies, and I, and I use it in almost every presentation I give, is the one by Yaniyama, in which they looked at oral care, uh, a, a standardized protocol for uh, doing mouth care uh, versus those who would do it on their own. And so what basically happened here was that they were doing a comparison between oral care and no oral care in a group of pe people with and without teeth. And this is, not, this is a 2002 Journal of the American Geriatric uh, Society. But it looked at the people with teeth and those with oral care and with, without oral care. They looked at the number of patients who developed fever. Um, they looked at the number of patients who developed pneumonia and the number of patients who died. And basically what it was is that uh, the difference between those who did oral care and no oral care, uh, those with oral care, only 6% passed away. In the same time period for those who did not have oral care, 20% passed away. Wow. For developing pneumonia, 9% with uh, standard oral care, 21% developed pneumonia uh, without good oral care. Those without teeth, the numbers are almost identical. And so this is a good study to show us that, that 
there are two that that the, the oral care is an extremely important component in trying to uh, fight this potential for developing pneumonia. So that's my three pillars, basically, uh, taking the work of Ortega and then taking some like Yaniyama's here and others that have supported what I kind of found out through my own clinical research. Okay. So anyway, that's basically the three pillars. Now, has uh, what what that has done for me, of course, is that in my own clinical practice over the years, uh, those are the standard features that I look for in trying to predict whether or not um, um, my patients might develop pneumonia. Yeah. And and that's and that's what I did. I mean, I looked at the severity of the illness, and I looked at at uh, with our instrumental studies. Uh, and that's why I that's why I really went to the point of moving away from screening tests so much and putting all of my information, the data that I needed, onto instrumental studies. Couldn't get what I needed from the screening test. I had a good instrument. I had good instruments to do the laryngeal assessment. Um, it just takes kind of a protocol to look at the mouth and how bad the mouth is, and, um, and we have some tests for that as well. Those are really the three pillars, and they've stood me in good stead, and I understand from others they have stood in good stead with them as well, because um, we often wonder, is my patient going to develop pneumonia? And, and, and to give you an idea, just one last point on this, when you don't have a severely ill patient, let's say you've got a head and neck cancer patient. This patient has, um, it's aspirating. I mean, they're aspirating. You, you see it on your on your MBS. You see it on fees. These people are aspirating like crazy. They head and neck cancer patients. They've had radiation or they had some sort of ablative surgery, and they are just swallow cripples. But they don't get pneumonia. They don't develop pneumonia. And you say, why? Well, these people are not seriously ill. They have a good immune system. You look at the white blood cell count. It's normal. Now, yes, they may have a bad mouth. And yes, they may be aspirating, but it's not enough. I mean, our immune system, their immune system can overcome those kinds of things. And so, you know, I often say to those patients, um, if you develop a fever, if you are not feeling well, you take your temperature. And if you're getting a temperature, you get to the emergency room immediately. It may not be a pneumonia, but it could be. Yeah. And particularly if you've been sick with something, even a bad cold or your new tract infection, whatever, uh, you could you could develop this parasitic uh, disease uh, of, of pneumonia. Yeah. So that's kind of that's what my pillars are. Awesome. Well, so and let's go back a little bit and talk about you know you do like to use instrumentation a lot more. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge proponent for fees too, but I think a lot of the the big things people ask, what's the huge difference between fees and MBS? And that, obviously, that's a whole nother ball game, but the huge thing for me was once I first saw these gigantic gobs of secretions, you know, hanging around the airway. You can kind of tell they have a wet, gurgly voice, but you don't really know exactly what's going on. And then you get down there and just see oh my, years of secretions, you know, stuck to the, in the laryngeal vestibule. I got to the place that probably 98% of my patients uh, went for instrumentals. Um, Gary McCullough uh, was a friend of mine, and I was the sponsor of his CF uh, back in the VA many years ago in which he was doing these studies, in which he looked at these screening tests that we have, and when you get 
screening tests that are 40 and 50% sensitivity, you're missing a lot. Yeah. And I think we all knew that, but it was the best we had at the time. That's not the case now. And really as a profession, and I'm quite sure there'll be some people who are going to vehemently disagree with me. We need to be moving away from the use of screening tests determine whether or not the patient person is safe or not. I mean, screening tests were originally devised to answer one question. Does this patient potentially have dysphagia or not? And nothing else. And for anyone who tells me that they can, that they know that the person's got stasis or that they know which, which um, uh, side of the pharynx the bolus is flowing down based on their screening test, I've got news for you. You need help. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because yeah. that's impossible. And so yeah. we now have two very good instruments. We have fees and we have MBS. And both of these now are gold standards. Both of these have been used as the model upon which to stack everything else up against. Uh, and, and, and truly, they are. Now, they both look at different things. But so does a CT scan and so does an MRI. And so when we have these different camps who say, well, I wouldn't use fees because you can't see everything. Well, that simply tells me that you don't know anything about fees. Right. Okay. I mean, if, right. if, if that's your response, you don't know anything about fees because you've never done fees. You're not experienced in fees. And so you don't know. Now, there's certainly there are some things you can't see with fees. But likewise, there are certain things you can't see with MBS. But we have two tools here. And there will be a time when we may have to utilize both tools on a patient, just like a CT, just like an MRI. And so we have two nice tools in our bag now, and we should be utilizing these screening tests or these bedside assessments. It's just to answer the question, does the patient have dysphagia or not? And then get right down to the root of the matter is using the instrumental test not only to determine aspiration, but we must learn, we must find out all kinds of factors like did he aspirate if he did when did it occur in the swallow trial before during or after and depending upon the consistency you will and, and the data shows this you aspirate at different times depending upon the consistency we need to know where that aspiration is coming from is it coming over the left side predominantly over the area epiglottic fold, or is it coming over the post-cricoid space into the larynx? Um, is this from reflux? There are a lot of things that we need to know. In fact, here at, in our company at SAS, we, we have a protocol that we do. I mean, we do it on every patient, same way, every time. Everyone in our company does the same thing every time. When I figured it out the other day, we do 17 trials routinely, unless we have to bail out. And then we've got something 13, 14, I've forgotten exactly how many variables that we score. It's 13. I was looking at it the other 13. day. 13. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think if we do the math on that, it comes out to be, if you look at every one of those, you have 221 data points on that person's swallow. Now, that's a heck of a lot of data on a person's swallow when you look at um, – bolus flow and you look at delayed swallow or you look at premature spilling, uh, what about stasis, what about aspiration, you know, residue. And by the time you look at all of those factors, 
you can have well over 200 data points. And with 200 data points like that, you can begin making some excellent, excellent determinations about what's wrong with that patient. When, where, how, everything. And that helps you get to the biomechanics of the problem. And I'll just tell anyone who's listening, you can't do therapy without knowing the biomechanics of the swallow. If you don't know what's wrong, you can't fix it. And so you have to determine that. And you can't do that with a bedside assessment. So we have two good instruments that do that. And we have some good analysis. If you've taken the MBS IMP, uh, Bonnie Martin Harris has really set you up very, very well for assessing an MBS. And yes, it takes time but so does any good doctor's diagnosis as well. Here in fees, we use the same system, uh, a, a similar system as the MBS IMP in the way in which we score our fees. And it's one that we've developed through our company. And um, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of data that you can get out of that and, and point you in the right direction uh, on how you should be treating the, those, those conditions. You know, it's so funny. I just wrote a blog post yesterday, actually, and you I'm sure you didn't know about this or we didn't even discuss this in advance. But that's pretty much what I talked about was the MBS IMP, the way you guys score your fees and your company. And then we have people that are trying to make guesstimations at the bedside and just characterizing it as a oral phase dysphagia or a pharyngeal phase dysphagia. You know, we have well, these great tools out there that some people are still so resistant to using for some odd apparent reason. Well, it's, it's, it's time. We are, we are now in the adolescence of our, of our profession as far as dysphagia is concerned. We've been doing this now for a number of years. And it's time that we got away from the toys that we were taught early years ago of just making behavioral observations. We now have the tools and we now have the things that are needed. And, and we need better tools. Absolutely. I have to say that as well. Yeah. We need to improve the tools that we have. And, and, that's, and that's coming. Uh, we've got to get away from this idea that you can walk up to the bedside and spend two minutes, give them a drink of water, and know all there is to know about their swallowing. I don't want any doctor treating me that way if I've got a disease in my body. Yeah, and I don't yeah. think our patients want us treating them that way either. Right. Absolutely. All right. So let's let's back up a little bit. I'm going to play clinician that didn't learn any of this stuff, okay? okay? So you. So this is the first time I'm hearing all this, right? I had no idea that oral care played such a role in dysphagia. So now I know. My eyes are wide open. What do you recommend? Is there a specific teeth brushing protocol or is oral B mouthwash sufficient? You know, is there a specific protocol? And maybe in your one study, you said um, had a better protocol than the other. But I know there's so many people that are, you know, even post on Facebook, well, what do I even do for oral care? We're even to the basics of that. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're just now getting into this. And so I'd like to change your thinking a little bit. Uh, What I'd like for you to do is begin thinking about Uh, oral care is not a care, all right? A care is brushing someone's hair and giving them a bath and maybe changing their clothes. That's a care, okay? Making them smell good, put a little perfume on them, that sort of thing, all right? A little deodorant. Oral care is not that. And we have to change our way of thinking that it's not a care. Instead, because we've got several billion bacteria in our mouth at any one time that we have a sick person it has now turned into infection control 
And we should be thinking about, particularly in our nursing care patients, our acute care patients, intensive care patients, is it not being an oral care, but in staying, instead of being an oral infection control program, we have to attack the mouth as though it's infected because the patient's infected, okay? Uh, or they have the potential for becoming infected. There are no standard protocols in the United States for oral care or for oral infection control. I'm gonna continue to use oral care because people are more familiar, but think of it as infection Yeah, control. yeah, I, I do like how that sounds. Okay, so there are no standard protocols and it's kind of being left up to each facility to develop their own. While this is primarily a nursing care, I mean, it really is a nursing job. It's one of their things is to, you know, to brush the teeth. That does not necessarily mean that they're the only ones who should be doing it. A speech pathologist should be doing more of it. You certainly get to know your patient well when you yeah, brush their I think, teeth. I think the big issue is a lot of times nurses are willing to do it, but then they look to the speech pathologist. Well, you're the one that's harping on yeah. doing the oral care. So why don't you provide us with an in-service as to what to do? Right. You know, and it's not right. using the little pink sponges just with right. water once a day. Right. Absolutely. And and for any oral, pro, oral care program in any facility, uh, you want to get the nurses on board. You want to get the CNAs on board because they're the, really the ones who are doing it, the CNAs. And so you want to get them on. And, we, and, and that's what we do in our company. We, we do free end services at our facilities, and we get the CNAs in there and, and give them like a little 20-minute presentation and, and why it's important for them to do what they do. So, so certainly ongoing education for a successful program is necessary. Now, as far as the actual care itself is concerned, a toothbrush, a toothbrush, a toothbrush, <laughs> okay? Uh, a toothbrush was made because it's abrasive. Not a pink sponge. Not a pink sponge. Sponges are made, the little, the little foam sponges are made to clean out the big stuff. The, the cleaning out of all this dried secretions in the mouth, unfortunately, uh, NPO patients, that sort of thing. Uh, to clean out all that stuff. But it's not made to dip into mouthwash and just wash out the mouth with. That does not, because dental plaque adheres to the enamel. The enamel is the primary focus of dental plaque. And this is where dental disease is, is, is and this is where the majority of our, of our pathogens are in the mouth, is around the teeth and on the teeth. So you've got to have an abrasive brush. You've got to have a medium to soft brush, okay? And then you've got to use toothpaste. And uh, toothpaste is also gritty, okay? Now, this should not come as a shock to anybody. Um, we've been learning this ever since we were, we, uh, our mothers first uh, stuck a tooth brush in our mouths but we need the toothpaste because it also is is abrasive and so along with the brushing action and that gritty toothpaste even though it looks smooth in the tube it does have a little grit to it then you can wash it out now there are special circumstances there are some patients that uh, toothpaste um, uh, causes a lot of secretions and that sort of thing well you should use special brushes like suction toothbrushes they're really excellent. You can do a hand pump, but the really more convenient ones are if you're in a hospital is you can connect it to the walls, suction there, and it's got a little hole in it. And uh, you put your finger on, on one little hole that causes the suction, just like a, just like a, a, a Yonkers. You put your, your finger on it and it suctions where you do the same thing on the toothbrush. Um, 
So this is, again, a very, very nice uh, device to have. Uh, some of the literature also tells us that those who do not have to have suction toothbrushes, that particularly for our older patients, the rotary toothbrush is probably the best. And it doesn't have to be an expensive one, but it can be a, a nice rotary toothbrush. It runs on a battery, and your OT folks can put a little bit larger handle on it, and they can handle it better. And with just minor assistance, many of our older patients can, uh, can, can brush the teeth very, very well. Um, as far as mouthwashes are concerned, sure, Bioteam's good. Uh, we just got to be very careful about finding over-the-counter uh, mouthwashes that have alcohol in them. Uh, this is this is not a good thing. It, it 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 dries the mouth out. It burns the mouth and that sort of thing. Um, but but biotin's a good one. One that is for the very very sick patient. It has to be done by prescription. Is chlorhexidine. Now there's no foolproof uh, mouthwash, and mouthwash should never um, <clears throat> should never take the place of toothbrushing. And some of our people think that you can stick the little sponge and in the mouthwash and you can do that. You can't stick that little sponge in the mouthwash and that takes a place. Now there's a lot of controversy on, not controversy, a lot of opinions really about how often the mouth should be clean. For probably your acute care patient, those who don't, who are not, um, they don't have, you know, they're not real sick, but they're still in acute care or nursing home patients, usually twice a day is sufficient. When the person wants, uh, when you want to brush their mouth, uh, before a meal or after a meal, but it should be done twice a day, and I think that's what we most of us do in the community. Now, in some circumstances, uh, it may require some patients to brush their teeth more. We know that the, the literature on uh, ventilator-associated or intensive care patients have found that that three times a day, you know, at Vanderbilt University here, I've worked with those folks for a number of years, and through our in-services, they devised a program as well in which they did brush, they did mouth cleaning every shift change. So that was three times a day. And let me tell you, their, their pneumonia rates hit the floor. They literally bottomed out. It was a tremendous success and apparently still going on today. They haven't invited me back, so it must be doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the, the three times a day is good. In some cases, there, some of the literature says that four times a day. But I'll tell you, that's a lot on our nursing staff to do. And the literature really doesn't, doesn't tell us experiences out there of nurses and physicians have not really shown that three times is not as good as four or four is not as good, whatever. So depending upon the illness of the patient, uh, say they're probably two to three times a day. And I want to kind of take a little jag off of that to MPO patients. Yep. Um, Somewhere or another in our thinking, we think that because a person is on tube feeding, that we do not have to do the oral infection control. And uh, this is absolutely not the truth. Uh, I have another favorite article, and it's by Meda. Actually, it's, uh, it's in Dysphagia Journal, and it's M-A-E-D-A and Akagi, A-K-A-G-I. What this did was look at tube-fed patients and the oral care. They make the statement says sometimes oral care is not provided as often on MPO patients and those on any kind of tube feeding compared to those who take nourishment orally. Well, 
the data's there. They did two different groups, standard oral care procedure, twice a day. And then they have the second group who just kind of let them do what they normally would do, just informal uh, oral care. Well, uh, the pneumonia rates were very similar to that that we saw in Yaniyama's. Also, uh, the fever rate for these patients was this, almost the same. It was almost double for those who were kind of left to their to their druthers versus those who were on a standardized oral care program. And also, the amount of antibiotics was about half in those who got a standard pro, uh, oral care program. And they also looked at the cost, and they found there's almost a 40% decrease in hospital costs for those who were on a standard uh, oral care program. Wow. So there are two fed patients. We sometimes say that it's not necessary, but it is something that, that we need to do, whether they're on tube feeding or not. And also the other thing to point out is that when you don't put anything in that mouth, the mouth changes. That's why in our company, we have a policy we make. We do not make anyone strict NPO. We, everybody gets ice chips. We've got to turn the environment of the mouth over. We've got to keep it moist. We've got to keep them swallowing. And I don't care how sick these people are. Unless now, if they're not, if they're not conscious, that's different. Okay. <laughs> that's different. But if they can take some ice chips, or they can take a half a teaspoon, a three-quarter teaspoon, or whatever, just keep that mouth moist. Even though they may be aspirating, you've got to keep that mouth moist because it's going to reduce the pathogen buildup. They're, they're constantly sloughing it off if they have some sort of uh, moisture. Furthermore, if you do not feed, if you make people NPO for long times, their saliva changes, becomes thicker, and also the immune properties of it reduce. So it's almost one of those things like you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah, absolutely. And we start changing the environment of the mouth. So anyway, that's kind of my spiel on the NPO. So what about the toothpaste? What if they end up swallowing and ingesting the toothpaste? I don't think that's going to be much of an issue. You know, you know yourself in, in looking at, you look at a lot of these patients, they've got a lot of secretions in the throat anyway. Well, here in the toothpaste, if you can suction a lot of that stuff out, you know, at least you suction toothpaste if that's what you're concerned about. But otherwise, you're not really going to get that much more with a, a little bit of toothpaste in the saliva. And, flor and on top of that, it's got some some fluoride in it, uh, bicarbonates in it, and things like that that actually kind of work for the patient. So cool. I wouldn't really worry too, worry too much about that. All right. Well, thank you. That was great. Last topic, let's go back and revisit talking about aspirating thicker liquids as opposed to thin liquids. Got a little bit of time to kind of mull that one over. You know, this is a big question that we have. Um, a lot of people... Uh, the late Dr. Jerry Logeman used to tell us that, you know, changing diet consistency should be the last thing that we do. As a profession, it's the first thing we do. Uh, and I understand. I understand the, the thought processes behind that. But I think that we, and I say we, I include myself and everyone else that I know in this, is that it seems to be the easiest thing to do, but it sure is a lot of guesswork. And so I can fall back and say <laughs> that if you don't do an instrumental study, how do you know how safe a consistency is? Right. I have a pair of x-ray glasses that I use. Okay. <laughs> you yeah. do. And I think Dr. Karen Brown's got a pair just like them, but we're the only ones that I know of <laughs> that have x-ray glasses and we can look into the neck. But anyway, the only way you're going to determine whether or not a consistency is safe and is managed efficiently or not is through an instrumental study. 
And so this idea of doing a bedside assessment and putting a person on honey-thick liquid and puree, that's shooting in the dark. We really have to go more toward that. In our company, we do not test honey-thick liquid as part of our regular protocol because there's only one food that is honey-thick. Honey. Honey. Yes, I got it. And I don't think many of us eat honey on a routine basis, okay? We may have it for breakfast or whatever, I don't know. But now people say, yeah, but that's not the whole reason. What we're trying to do is trying to make it so that they don't aspirate. Well, that's true. I understand that as well. It slows down the motility. However, there are two studies that I think are important. I really appreciate the work that these, that these two of these people did. And one of the studies was by Jerry Logeman, and back in 2008, she did a study, and perhaps you are familiar with it. it I think I wrote a four-part blog series about yeah, that one. Okay, yeah, well, there you go. You know, <laughs> this is the randomized study of three interventions yep. on aspiration of thin liquid. And this was the, this was the chin down posture, this is nectar thick, and this is honey. And of course, what she came out with, what her results were, the chin down was the least effective in preventing aspiration, and that honey thick was the best for of the three uh, uh, for preventing aspiration. So we went, yoo-hoo, we finally found a reason for, we finally found that, yes, this shows that honey thick is very effective in preventing aspiration. However, however, <laughs> however Dr. Joanne Robbins and her colleagues put out a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine, 2008, in which they were looking at the comparison of two interventions for liquid aspiration or pneumonia incident. And of course, what she found was that honey-thick liquid, if you develop pneumonia, it was more often gonna occur with thicker consistencies like honey-thick than it would with nectar or with the chin-down posture. In fact, nectar was the best at preventing aspiration out of that. So here we have a conundrum. We have a consistency that is effective in preventing aspiration, but if, if the person aspirates that consistency, it increases their chances significantly, and like 15% of the people uh, out of the group developed pneumonia from it. So what do we do? Once again, <laughs> it goes back to this thing that you've got to treat every patient the same. What I mean by that is, you've got to assess every patient the same way every time. And you have got to treat them as individuals. Every patient is a research project. I know SLPs don't want to hear that, but they are research <laughs> projects. I mean, Dr. Langmore tells us that we are observers. And when something goes wrong, then we become investigators. And so that's what we have to learn to do, is we have to learn to investigate which consistency is best for this patient or what methods are best for this patient. We can only do that by using instrumental assessments to do it. And I certainly prefer fees only because it gives us more freedom to do those things. Please don't get me wrong, I'm not against MBS. I, I, I still have barium on clothes from years of that. I think I use the old joke, <laughs> this right hand glows in the dark from, from doing so many MBS. But I think for looking at the effectiveness of consistencies over trials, I prefer myself, I prefer what fees tells us and, and how well it is managed. But we could get very similar results also with MBS. Certainly prefer those over 
any type of bedside, blind bedside assessment. Uh, that's kind of where I stand. I think what we need to also understand is that if you've got a mouth loaded full of bacteria and it's not been cleaned well, and you put a thicker consistency in there, you can expect a larger bacteria load to go into the respiratory system. There you go. Certainly, you're, you're, you have a higher probability of developing a, a reaction to that or some sort of pneumonia or abscess or something like that. I think that's the money quote right there. So one final question for you. I'm going to put you on the spot here. If there's one study or paper that came out that changed your thinking about everything you do, what would it be? Wow. Certainly the two studies that I, that I mentioned earlier were, were, to me, changers, all right? But I have to say that rather than a study, I think it's going to be a person. And, and I think the person who has had, uh, certainly Dr. Jerry Logeman has had a tremendous uh, impact upon all of us, and certainly Dr. Langmore has as well. But I really think that Stephen Lee probably yeah. has influenced my thinking and the way I think about the care of our patients, and his work with uh, Aspiration, certainly his Yale protocol, he and Deb Suter on the Yale protocol, which is an excellent test. I think his body of work uh, probably helped shape me um, and, and what I have done in later years. One of the, the, the last thing I would say, too, is when Jay Rosenbeck, Robbins, and Coyle and that group came out with the Penetration Aspiration Scale, I think it to me that was the equal to the 16 point scoring scale that we had on the pica back in the 60s and 70s because you could use one number to give you a multi-dimensional view of what's going on and of course we've kind of adapted that uh in our practice and so we've taken up some work from some germans and kind of adapted that to our what we do using a five-point scale so i would think that that's those have been some career changers, some thought changes for me. I just know we kind of all have our yeah. people, our researchers, that we all really yeah. like their work. And so I just kind of like to hear what inspires everybody else. So, all right. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. A. Well, you're welcome. I was more than yeah. happy to do it. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.